Hey guys, welcome back to the show. My name is Don Van Zant. This is the Lost Mission Podcast, where our goal is to help us as believers get back to our mission of knowing and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our series on Galatians. We are combating legalism. But before we get into the show, cue the intro. Take this rule, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off your relish of spiritual things. In short, whatever increases the strength and authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may be in itself. That is an excerpt from a letter written to the young John Wesley from his mother, Susanna, in June of 1725, but I really feel like it it encompasses a lot of what we're going to be talking about on the show here today. So we are in the book of Galatians. We're still talking about legalism, but, but today's episode is going to take a little bit of a different turn. We're actually going to venture away from strictly speaking about legalism and, and, and kind of venture into the other side of the conversation, into that part of a person that once they have started to sort of break free from legalistic attitudes and, and, and a legalistic approach to God, that there's another side of this conversation, and a side that, that very much bears warning. And we hear it called all sorts of things. Uh, we hear it called backsliding. We hear it called turning away from the faith. We hear it called worldliness. So that's what I'm going to call it today, is worldliness. And uh, I think it really bears significance on the conversation surrounding legalism. And for the legalists, it is their biggest concern. It's what they're worried about the most. And it is honestly where those that are of the more legalistic persuasion, they've really got some, some very solid concerns that they raise. But what does Paul say about that in Galatians? Well, he talks about it. And that's what we're going to talk about here. All right, we are in Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we finished up chapter 3. We went, we went basically verse by verse in our last video. This video is not going to be so much verse by verse. We're still going to try to be as expository as we can, but more of still textual, topical type of a conversation. But Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. In these first seven verses, Paul is going to discuss sort of this idea of heirship and and of somebody being an heir. He's carrying on the idea of an heir from chapter 3, verse 29, where he speaks of heirs according to promise, um, or the Gentile believers that were justified by faith, that they were the heirs according to promise. But but when he uses the term heir, he doesn't do it so much in, in direct reference to his earlier comments. It's kind of more indirectly, using heirship to highlight his point about slavery. He's going to really talk about slavery quite a bit. He states that the heir is no better than a slave while he is young. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different than a slave. But how? How is an heir not unlike a slave. The heir is like a slave in that while he owns everything because he's the heir, 
he he controls nothing <laughs> because he's a child. It wouldn't make sense for a small child to completely run and rule the estate of his father. He would mess it up. Things could get terrible. And actually, probably, it would be a better screenplay idea than a serious suggestion. So he has guardians put into place. He has those that are telling him what to do. And he's essentially their slave. He's told what to do by guardians and by managers until the time appointed by his father. And so when, when Paul talks about these errors in Galatians, um, it, it's, it's really kind of difficult and tricky to navigate because Paul is really kind of going back and forth between the, the idea of the Jews as heirs and between Gentiles as heirs. On the one hand, he's speaking of the Jews as heirs through Abraham, that they were the actual physical heirs. But, but then on the other hand, he speaks of the Gentiles who are heirs through Christ. But even though the, the, the approach to them being heirs is a bit different, the inheritance is the same. And that inheritance is Christ. That inheritance is salvation. So there are both Jewish and Roman allusions that Paul um, could be appealing to here, and we could talk about those and dive deeply down into Jewish culture of the time and into Roman culture of the time, but, but I feel like that would just drag on and kind of bore you guys. That's really not what I'm interested in doing. But, but the point is that the believer is to grow in maturity in Christ because they are an heir. They are to grow up until they can receive what is rightfully theirs. So the heir is the believer, Jew or Gentile. Whichever side of the, of the equation they land on or whichever side of the conversation they land on, uh, they're, they're the believers. But who are the guardians? In verse 2, he says... But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So, who were the guardians? The guardians, or those that enslaved the Gentiles, because he's speaking directly to the Gentiles here, the guardians, those that enslaved the Gentiles, were their old, pagan, secular, worldly lives. You understand that the Galatians had come up out of a pagan culture. And so they had been enslaved to this pagan lifestyle, this pagan system, this, this, this culture that they lived in was a very pagan time. So the guardians, or those that enslaved the Gentiles, it was their old pagan lifestyle. And there, there, there's a point here that, that really must be emphasized. When we read verse 2, we need to go on and make sure that we read in context, read verse 3 as well. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So notice that phrase, elementary principles. What is he talking about? What is he saying? Well, he's using a Greek word there um, that it's, it's really a pretty simple breakdown of the word. It's the Greek word sto stoicheia or stoicheion, depending on the, the way that you use the word, uh, which really it means just a very basic thing. So an elementary principle is a basic thing. If you remember back to when you were young, when you were in elementary school, you learned some very basic things. 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's pretty elementary. You learned your ABCs. That's pretty elementary. Well, that's what Paul is referring to here. To the Jews, the basic thing that they were enslaved to was the old Jewish law. They were enslaved to the law. And the legalists coming in to, to the Galatian culture were trying to take them back to this elementary principle the law. But to the Gentiles, there was something entirely different. Regionally, culturally, historically, they were not under the law. 
So they didn't understand what the law was. But that's not to say they lived lives of absolute and perfect freedom. No, (laughs) they were still enslaved to some very basic things. And that was their old system, their old culture, their old way of life. And so the point that Paul's making, and this is so important that we understand this, the point that Paul's making when he refers to these elementary principles is that in the life of the believer, just as much as legalism and works righteousness is a sign of spiritual immaturity, and it is, just as much as legalism is a sign of spiritual immaturity, well, so is worldliness. How does that play out, though, in in the life of of a modern-day believer? Because, by and large, uh, paganism isn't the the established culture, at least not in America, in a sort of modern or postmodern context. So we're not a a pagan culture, but we do have a very worldly culture that we live in. And so when Christ calls us out of the world, and we are saved, regenerated, we are not to go back into and live an old worldly lifestyle over and again. There's a change that is wrought in a life. There's a change that takes place in a person. So think of it this way. Think of it like, like a spectrum. On the one end of the spectrum, you have legalism. And with all its rules with all its restrictions, with all of its can't-dos, you have legalism on the one side. But then on the other side of the spectrum, you have worldliness. And inside of worldliness, it's you just do as you please, live any way you want, you know, any easy come, easy go, you do as you please. And that's the spectrum. And on both ends of those, as the old saying goes, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. Both of these, though, Legalism is false and anti-gospel, and we have talked about that at great length. But you know what? Worldliness is false and anti-gospel. So when we think about God, we think about Christ, we think about Christianity, we understand that we're not saved to be legalistic. And praise God for that. There's freedom in Christ. But we're also not saved just to go back and have no change of life. There is a real and a true change that takes place in a believer. So both of these are false. Uh, But notice verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So God sent his son to redeem those under the law, the Jews, on the one end of the spectrum, so that we might receive adoption as sons on the other end of the spectrum. The Jews on one side, the Gentiles on the other, the legalists on the one side, those that were worldly on the other. God sends his son to save them all. And we cry, Abba, Father, because we're no longer slaves. We're not a slave to the world system. We don't live or act. Uh, as the world acts as Christians. So because of that, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba being a term of affection uh, from a young child to their father, they they would say, Abba, Father. Um, It's likely not Daddy God, and I won't get into that that conversation. As a matter of fact, uh, the Gospel Coalition wrote a great article kind of debunking the whole Daddy God 
um, theory, and they give, I believe, four reasons why. I'll, I'll link to the article in the description of the video. We won't get into the conversation, but suffice to say, Abba Father is not the same thing as Daddy God. <laughs> so the Jews were redeemed from the law. The Gentiles were redeemed from the world. There seems to be a real strong disconnect there. And, and honestly, some of you guys that have been out there following the show, some of you quit on me too soon. That you didn't let, the, let, let me get through the book of Galatians to get to where we needed to be because you just heard, oh, he's saying there are no holiness standards, so, so cancel. <laughs> so many of you quit on me too soon with this study. I focused on legalism hard and heavy in the first three episodes because that's what Paul focused on. Now, Paul is telling them that they should not return to weak elements of the world. And he's going to talk about that a little bit more in verse 9. But understand that worldliness is no better than legalism. Worldliness is no better than legalism. God has called his people out. And yes, there's a certain element of them being separated from the world. In verses 8 through 10, is slavery to the world better than slavery to the law? Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid... I've labored over you in vain. So Paul refers to the former life of the Galatians. He, he makes reference to the life they had one time lived. Like I said, they were pagan. They worshipped gods that in reality were not even gods. They were false gods. They weren't real. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. There's, a, there's an element of Christianity that really interacts with the real world, that our God is a real God. And every other God is a false god, meaning they don't even exist. So he, he's, he's sort of asking the Galatians, now that they know God, should they just go back and live life as they had before with no change? <laughs> the answer to that question is absolutely not. That's just Christianity 101. No wonder he, he's talking to them about elementary principles. That is such an elementary thing inside of Christianity. We don't live like the world. That's just as bad as legalism. And, and, and the importance of, of these verses cannot be overstated in, in a modern context. Within the post-emergent church era, uh, a time where things like progressive Christianity and faith deconstruction um, are at the forefront of much of Christian thought, even inside of the holiness movement, uh, it's so important that we are aware that coming out of legalism, all right, so, so for those of you that, that are questioning legalism, listen to me here, for those of you that are coming out of, of legalism, the answer is not to go into worldliness. Faith deconstruction is unhealthy, it's, it's, and, and, and becoming a, um, a progressive Christian is not the way to look at your faith. Should we cast off all of the old legalism? Absolutely, absolutely. But God does not save us so that there can be no change in our lives. This has been the plague of so many that have left the holiness movement. So many. When they leave the movement, they say, I'm done. I'm checking out. I'm going away. They don't just leave the movement. 
They leave Christ altogether. They apostatize. They give up on their faith. Uh, Full stop. I've seen it happen time and time again. People that I know, people that I love, people that I appreciate, that they don't just leave legalism. They leave the faith. And guys, that's not the answer. That's not what we're looking for here. And really, it's, it's, it's a poor reflection. So what does this do for the movement? When, when somebody leaves legalism, they, they finally come to this aha moment where they realize, hey, legalism is bad, and I don't want to be a legalist any longer. And so their answer is to completely leave the faith. It does two things. One, <laughs> it provides fuel for the fire of the legalists. They use these people in their sermons and their illustrations to further perpetuate the culture of fear that if you leave, you will backslide. I've heard it time and again. Every camp meeting, every youth camp that I've ever gone to, there's been some story that's told about somebody that left, and then some terrible thing happened to them. And so, playing into that narrative, I've seen so many allow themselves to turn into a sermon illustration, and they're adding fuel to the fire of the legalists. Understand, the legalists are wrong. The legalistic approach and preaching that we hear from so many holiness pulpits is not gospel. But what happens is so many play this game with them, and they allow them to win out in the end. So it provides fuel for the fire of the legalists. But two, it greatly affects the personal lives of the ones that leave. They show their hand. Due to a lack of conviction and or commitment to Christ, Through years of abuse and bad discipleship, they don't just leave legalism. They adopt a world system that is both anti-God and self-absorbed. And many times to great harm to themselves, to their families, to their marriages, to their children. Because they allow legalism to win in the end. By playing into this, by, by giving into a world system. And I submit to you, the listener, to you, the viewer... That, that, that when you play into that narrative, you've exposed your hand that maybe your faith wasn't as genuine as some may have thought it to be, possibly even yourself. That's between you and God, but just a general observation. But also, you're giving these guys fuel for their fire. There is a way to look at false doctrine and say, I don't want the false doctrine, but I do want Christ. And that is our goal. That is Paul's goal in the writing of Galatians. We'll see that more and more in the final two episodes when, when, when we begin to talk about the works of the flesh and the, the fruit of the Spirit and, and restoration and all those types of things. So therefore, Paul is saying that earning one's salvation through scrupulous biblical morality and religion is just as much enslavement to idols as outright paganism. And all its immoral practices, in the end, the religious person is as lost and enslaved as the irreligious person. Why? Both are trying to be their own Savior and Lord, but in different ways. Both are based on the basic principles of the world, the elementary principles of the world. And both of them, legalism and worldliness, come down to self-salvation. I can handle it myself. I don't need Jesus. The legalists tries to bypass Christ through works righteousness. The worldly person tries to bypass Christ by being their own savior. He warns the Galatians that they they can go back to being enslaved by things that by nature are not God's. 
chapter 4, verse 8. But why? Because though the gods do not exist as such, we can become subject to enslavement by evil spiritual forces if we worship anything other than Jesus Christ. And look, I understand that most people are not going to physically bow down and worship an idol. But when we, we put anything as the primary focus in our life that is not Christ, it has then become an idol to us. Anything. And at the center of anything that is not Christ is self and is self-salvation and really is worship of self, which turns into um, a form of paganism and a form of idolatry which is no God, which is allowing Satan to win. And but, but, but what Paul does, he offers a sense of beauty to this conflict. He reminds the Galatians of two things. He reminds them in verse 9 that not only do they know God, and there is nothing more powerful than to know that we know God, but he also reminds them that God knows them. The beauty of real salvation is knowing we are free from religious legalism because we know God. And I don't need legalism to help me to know that I know God. I really know Him. But we're also free from worldly entanglements because He knows us and He sets us free. To the Galatians, it was the power of the gospel that had gone forward through the preaching of Paul and and the establishment of the church there that they had come to know God, but that God had really pulled them out. We cannot undervalue the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer in both salvation and sanctification. Christ saves, Christ keeps. It is a work of Christ through the Spirit in our lives. That's the keeping power of the Spirit. Uh, A good friend of mine, Stephen Boyce, had this to say, The answer to legalism isn't antinomianism, it's Spirit-filled living. Antinomianism means no law. But how does legalism affect brotherly love? He's going to talk about that later on in the chapter um, through about verses 12 through 20. In the next verses, Paul's going to give a personal defense of himself and highlight how legalism can divide brothers. He commends the Galatians for their love and, and, and care for him. He mentions his ailment that had been a trial to him, but also to them. He doesn't really specify what that ailment is. He just says they had taken care of him. Could have been his eyesight, could have been some other physical ailment. We're not really sure exactly what it was. But regardless of ailment or appearance, our brothers and sisters in Christ are just that. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of ailment, regardless of appearance, they're our brothers and our sisters, and they should be treated as both brothers and sisters. He, he actually goes so far as to say that the Galatians would have gouged out their own eyes and given them to him if that's what he had needed. That's real brotherly love. When Paul had established the church in Galatia, even though he was ill and had an ailment in his own body, he had preached the gospel to them and they had provided for his need. That's, that's brotherly love. In action. Uh, he's obviously using hyperbole when he says that. He wasn't really expecting anybody to gouge their eye out and, and to give it to him, um, but he may have been referencing his poor eyesight. So there was this, this great thing that was taking place in Galatia. Then the legalists stepped in and they corrupted the Galatians. 
And Paul had, and still was, preaching the gospel. But but look what he says in uh, chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. Not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. In this, in this setting, Paul's desire is evident. He wants to see Christ formed in them, but he's also frustrated. His frustration is evident. And I've been around the holiness movement long enough to have seen this play out more than one time. A brother or sister starts to see the truth. You have conversations with them. You go to Scripture. You reason with them. You talk with them. Um, I've had enough conversations with, with enough pastors. You see them start to get it. The gospel starts to take root in their heart. And you rejoice. And praise God. You, you see them starting to say, I, I see where you're coming from. I understand your point. And you go away rejoicing in your spirit. I've had it happen to me multiple times through the years. And then you see them again later. Could be a year, a month, a day later. You see them later. And the legalism has returned. They were your friend. They treated you great. Now, for whatever reason, they have become your enemy. They're cold. They're distant. They're standoffish because of you. You're dangerous. You're shut out. You're shut down. Paul's prayer and desire for the Galatians was that they would grow to a place where they would, as the King James Version says, be zealously affected in a good thing. And I love the way the King James phrases that. I, I would love to be zealously affected in a good thing. But what he's talking about here is legalism and tells them that they have not been zealously affected in a good thing. That that is a bad thing to be affected by. Not only when he was present, but also when he was absent. He, he hopes that they could, in his presence, they could get it. But then they could grow. Christ could be formed in them that when he's not present, they would still get it. Influence is so key. Influence is so powerful. His prayer is that Christ would be formed in them, that they could grow. But for now, Paul was perplexed. And I've had many conversations with my wife and with others after seeing somebody that, that they had gotten it. Then you see them later and they, and they don't get it. I talk to my wife and say, I, I don't understand what happened. Somebody got to him. I don't know who, I don't know how, I don't know what, but somebody got to him. And I can see that legalism has returned in their life. At one time, they're saying, brother, I see your point. But then later, not so much. Paul's perplexed, and sometimes I am too. But then he talks later on in verse 21 through 31 uh, of two sons. So who are these two sons? He's going to close the chapter out speaking about, and this is such a powerful illustration that he uses. Paul will conclude this chapter uh, by once more referring to the law to support his argument against legalism. Uh, not, not directly as the law given by Moses, um, 
were given to Moses, but, but he's going to refer back to Torah, to the Pentateuch, to the first five books of the Old Testament. This time, he's going to refer to Genesis. Chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The Galatians had been so deceived by this legalistic approach, dietary law, circumcision, and, and the such like, that they had entered a state of a uh, sort of a second childhood. And what Paul does, rather than debate the finer points of the law, rather than get into circumcision or the dietary laws, he goes straight to the heart of the issue. The issue being a system or slavery to a system. To illustrate this point, he's going to go back to Genesis chapter 16, to the story of Ishmael and of Hagar. You, you know the story, but, but if you don't, here's, here's the breakdown. So Abraham is the head of the covenant line. He's known as the father of the faithful. It was through his seed God had promised to make him a great nation. There's Abraham, who's the father. Uh, this seed, though, would come through his wife, Sarah. That's the promised seed. But after years of not being able to conceive, Sarah acts apart from faith and gives Abraham her slave wife, or her slave, Hagar, as a wife to conceive seed. And she bears him a son, Ishmael. After more time and more promises of confirmation, Sarah does indeed have a son. And his name is Isaac. And Isaac is the son of promise. And you have these two competing sons. One, the son of promise, being Isaac. The other, Ishmael, um, who is not the son of promise. But really, the illustration isn't only found so much in the children as much as it is really found in the women. Because Paul's going to say this in uh, chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate, one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So Hagar represents the slave. Hagar represents bondage. She is Mount Sinai. She is Jerusalem. She is the law. She is legalism. Sarah represents the free woman. She represents liberty. She is the one above. She is the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the Christian mother. She is freedom. This motherhood obviously meant allegorically so, so that we don't adopt <laughs> a... a view of a female deity when he talks about her being our mother. Don't, don't think of a heavenly mother. Don't take that too far. What it's telling the believer is that because of the divine nature of Christian conversion, they are free. Hagar represents the law and its system, which is not by faith and not by promise. That's legalism. Sarah represents freedom. That's faith. But what does it mean to be free? I think that's, that's, that's a large question that we need to consider. What does it really mean to be free? 
I hope this is helpful, but Tim Keller in his book, Galatians for You, makes four interesting distinctions of people in regard to freedom and the law. And I think they're helpful to this, this discussion today. Number one, law obeying and law relying. These people are under the law and are usually very smug, self-righteous, and superior. Externally, they are very sure they are right with God. But deep down, they have a lot of insecurity. Since no one can truly be assured that they are living up to the standard, this makes them touchy, sensitive to criticism, and devastated when their prayers aren't answered. This includes members of other religions, but here I'm thinking mainly of people who go to church. These people have much in common uh, with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. So number one, law-obeying, law-relying Christians. Number two, law-disobeying, law-relying. These people have a religious conscience of strong works righteousness, but they are not living consistently with it. As a result of this, they are more humble and more tolerant of others than the Pharisees above. But they're also much more guilt-ridden, subject to mood swings, and sometimes very afraid of religious topics. Some of these people may go to church, but they stay on the periphery because of their low spiritual self-esteem. Law disobeying, but law relying Christians. Number three, law disobeying, not law relying. These are the people who have thrown off the concept of the law of God. They are intellectually secular or relativistic or have a very vague spirituality. They largely choose their own moral standards and then insist they are meeting them. But Paul in Romans 1, 18-20 says that at a subconscious level, they know there's a God who they should be obeying. Such people are usually happier and more tolerant than either of the above groups, but usually there is strong liberal self-righteousness. They are earning their own salvation by feeling superior to others. It is just that this is usually a less obvious kind of self-righteousness. And finally, he mentions the fourth group, law-obeying, not law-relying. These are Christians who understand the gospel and are living out of the freedom of it. They obey the law of God out of grateful joy that comes from the knowledge of their sonship and out of freedom from fear and selfishness that false idols had generated. They are more tolerant than number three, more sympathetic than number one, and more confident than number two. But most Christians struggle to live out number four and tend to see the world as one, two, or three. But to the degree that they do, they are impoverished spiritually. So, a lot said there. But to whatever end an individual feels the need to live out portions of the law, it must be stressed that these ought to be individual choices and not mandates placed on groups at the threat of loss of salvation. Our obedience to the law of God comes out of a desire to glorify God and to honor Christ. There is a way that a person could live out portions of the law and they say, I'm doing this to honor God. But the problem with an entire group mandate being placed under, under the law is that it is no longer done by choice, and as such, it is not done to glorify God. It is done of coercion, and it is done out of fear and manipulation. And those are forced into obedience on threat of loss of salvation. They go for the, the, the most sacred thing about a person. They threaten their eternity. Because if you don't obey this law, if you don't do this thing, you are not saved. And that is legalism. 
I want to stress this again. The law cannot save. It was never intended to. The idea, if you don't keep a strict moral code, you cannot be saved, is not the gospel. That is the antithesis of the gospel. That's everything that the gospel is not. Verse 31. So, brothers, we're not the children of the slave. We're not the children of the slave, but of the free woman. We're not the children of the law, but of the free woman. We're children of faith, children of Christ. The law can't save us. It cannot make us children. That's not how the gospel works. Chapter is going to close with the reminder that we are not under slavery, not under the law, that we are free in Christ. You know, I, I'm reminded of, of several other passages that we could, we could entertain outside of the book of Galatians, passages in Romans, 1 Corinthians, but one passage in particular, um, and I hate to just isolate one singular verse because there's a much broader context in which Paul says this, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Paul is telling them that I'm not to be dominated by my freedom. We must be careful that we don't let worldliness rule us, that we're dominated by a world system. Of course, we don't want to be dominated by the law or by legalism, but we don't want to be dominated by a world system. To summarize this discussion, I say, worldliness is no better than legalism. We're not saved by the law. But since we are saved, we are not to return to the world. What value is there in conversion if this is true? Look, I've had a lot of conversations with a lot of folks just recently that they seem to get it. But at the same time, I wonder if they do. Like, yeah, finally, we're free. That means I can do whatever I want. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that when you are a Christian, you are changed. And the thing that you one time were is gone. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. It's not that we go back and and live an old worldly lifestyle. The person that is saved ought to reflect a very serious change of conduct. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't change. I'm absolutely saying that we should change, that we should be different. Do we have full liberty in Christ? A resounding yes. Do we allow ourselves to be dominated by the world system? A resounding no, we do not. The secular world system is by nature, by definition, anti-God. And for those of my friends that may be following the, these episodes, that you've never made a real commitment to Christ, I encourage you to do that. Make Christ Lord of your life and watch him change you, your heart, your nature, your qualities of life, your characteristics, the things you say, the things you watch, the places you go. Everything about you will change when you come under the Lordship of Christ. Not in a legalistic sense, but in a sense of freedom. Freedom from the things that you hate. And there's a whole conversation to be had there. So there are no holiness standards. Absolutely not. 
You can't find them in scripture. They're not there. From cover to cover, the idea of holiness standards are not found in this Bible. But anarchy must not dominate our lives. Both are systems of failure. Why? Because Christ is Lord, not legalism, and not worldliness. Guys, till next time, grace and peace. I'll catch you later. Thank you.